remain standing and pray with me, please. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we come before you this morning. God, open our eyes, we pray, Holy Spirit, to that which you want to show us today from your word. God, I ask as the preacher of your word, fathers, we've already prayed this morning with the prayer team. God, I am a mere man. Father, I cannot do anything of which, I cannot do anything on my own. Holy Spirit, unless you show up, all that will happen here today is, is mere words from the mouth of a man. And so, God, I ask now that may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, again, if you have your Bibles this morning, as always, I'm going to ask you to take them and open them up to uh, the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1 will be in verses 15 to 23 this morning. So Ephesians 15, or Ephesians 1, uh, verses 15 to 23. And so as we continue in this season, as many of you know, this, we're, we're going through a, a season of, of a book. We veered away from the lectionary for this time, particularly as uh, our senior pastor, fa- our, uh, rector, Father Ben, is on a sabbatical. Um, he asked me to, to, to preach and to fill in for him throughout the summer. And God seemed to just lead us in that particular discussion, and particularly me, right to the book of Ephesians. So that's why we, we're veering away from the lectionary and are going to go through this book this summer. And so if you've been here for the past couple weeks, you probably remember, or maybe you recall, that uh, I've been emphasizing the structure of Ephesians several times now, over and over. You say, well, Father Keith, why do you keep doing that? Well, it's important that we keep in mind, or keep before us, this phrase that how we begin determines where we end. How we begin in life determines where we end. And so St. Paul, in chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, he begins with God. He begins talking about God. He begins talking about believers and what it means to be a child of Christ. And so Paul begins with God. He begins telling us what is ontologically true of God himself and and what is ontologically true of us as followers of Christ. You say, well, why, why is it so important to remember that? Well, think about this. If we start trying to define reality with ourselves, we're already lost in the world. Think about it. Last week, we looked at seven verbs in Ephesians that define who we are and whose we are in Christ. In verses 3 to 14 last week, Paul told us in one massive 200-word prayer of worship and praise that we, as beloved children of God, we are blessed, we are chosen, we are destined, we are bestowed, He has lavished upon us grace, he has made known his will to us, and he has gathered us up in Christ. And all of that is only possible because of the work of Jesus Christ. And last week you may recall I said those seven verbs should encourage us as believers. That they should and also serve to reorient us in life when truth sometimes gets muddy in life and we can't see a way forward in the world. Or when we lose our way in the world, we can always go back to Ephesians 1, particularly 3 to 14, and see who we are and whose we are in Christ. Well, I don't know about you, but in about 99% or 99.9% of the conversations that I've had in my 39 years here on planet Earth... You know, when I looked over those verbs last week, I I can't really remember any of those seven true God-given identity-defining verbs usually being part of the conversation. I don't really recall ever having any of those thoughts about myself 
or of God. Unless something outside of me, like the word of God, was to tell, was to tell me what I am or was to um, tell me what my identity is in God. And in fact, I believe that most of the conversations that you and I experience on a daily basis in society, and sometimes even within the church, a lot of times people don't care less about their God-given identity. And when we go over something like we did last week and we hear all those marvelous things about being blessed and chosen and destined and all that stuff, it begins to cause a dissonance in our life. I had some of you to walk up to me after service last week and say, Father Keith, I'm just not used to thinking of myself like that as a chosen, blessed child of God. All those things that Ephesians say about me. Well, friend, that's exactly why God, or excuse me, that's exactly why St. Paul begins with talking about God first. That's exactly why he begins with that, because we need to know. We need to be told that we are blessed, that we are chosen, we are destined, we are bestowed. We has, he has lavished grace on us. He has made his will known. He has gathered us up in Christ. We need to hear that, because we don't hear it in the world. We don't hear it in our own head. God has to tell us what he is up to and what he is doing. Well, this week, we change gears just a little bit as we move over into verses 15 to 23. The language that Paul uses in these verses is really still prayer language. See, last week, verses 3 to 14 are a prayer of worshipful blessing. This week, verses 15 to 23, we see him moving to pray, over to prayers of thanksgiving and then prayers of intercession. And so we're going to look at two main points this morning. Point number one, what is St. Paul thankful for in the lives of the Christians at Ephesus? And then point two, what, is the apostle, well, what does the Apostle Paul ask for on behalf of the Christians at Ephesus? So first, what is the Apostle Paul thankful for? If you've got your Bibles open, look with me, Ephesians 1, beginning with verse 15. He says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, or thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. There are two things that St. Paul is thankful for out of this passage. One, he's thankful for the faith of the Ephesians in the Lord Jesus Christ on their vertical relationship and how they have come to Christ. Secondly, he's thankful for the love the Ephesian saints have demonstrated toward the other saints, the horizontal relationship. So it seems like these guys have gotten some things right. They understand what it means to be in Christ, and then they understand how to live that out. Well, why is Paul thankful for their faith and love? It's because of this. Listen, faith and love and the life of disciples are marks. They are evidence that these folks are true disciples of Jesus Christ. See, authentic Christianity radically transforms both a person's Godward and manward dimensions in life. And it transforms our Godward and our manward attitude in life. Paul talked about the true marks of a Christian throughout most of the New Testament. Those two things, faith and love, in most of his letters. For example, over in 1 Corinthians 13, 3, he says this. He says, now, or so now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. In Galatians 5, 6, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor circumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And then in verse, excuse me, in 1 Thessalonians 1 through 3, 
He says this, he says, remembering before our Lord and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. See, friends, according to St. Paul, faith in Jesus Christ and biblical love for one another, particularly the love for other saints, even when they're unlovable sometimes, (laughs) are both key marks of what it means to be a real deal disciple of Jesus. Paul's thankfulness for their faith and love has implications for us to hear today too. Because get this, listen. Paul writes to Ephesians some 10 years later after being gone from Ephesus. I've said that before. There's little doubt that those little congregations grew after he was gone. And it's no doubt that this letter to Ephesus was passed on throughout the little churches that were there in that area too. But the point we need to note is this. The faith and love of the saints in Ephesus was such. In terms of magnitude, impact, and transformative effects on their lives. That Paul, 10 years later in prison, some thousand miles away. I mean, he's in the joint, if you will. He's on the inside. He's hearing about their faith and their love. Hearsay. So what's the big deal? Friend, 1,000 miles away back then was a significant distance. They didn't have Twitter back then. They didn't have email back then. No, they, it, Paul's not looking on his iPhone and all of a sudden sees awesome being at Church of Ephesus today, hashtag keeping the faith love real. Okay? They didn't have even snail mail. Most of it was word of mouth only and sending letters and messengers such a distance would have been incredibly expensive and hard. There was no marketing campaign. There was no social media going on at Ephesus. What was taking place was this. It's that the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, was going forth in Ephesus. And Jesus was literally changing lives and people were taking notice. So much so that the people couldn't be quiet about it. Their faith and love were contagious. They caught the same disease that Paul had. Once they got it, they began talking about it. And the news about that traveled over a thousand miles away about what was happening at Ephesus. It's kind of like that passage in scripture I read there for the words of Jesus. That little bitty mustard seed, just a little bit of faith and a little bit of love that was planted absolutely exploded in Ephesus all over the place. And then Paul gets word back. A thousand miles away, hey, the church is okay. This is what is happening. And Paul says, you know what? I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for that. Let me ask you this morning, beloved, is your faith in Jesus Christ contagious like that? I mean, has God done such a work in your life (laughs) that you just can't help telling other people about it? Has he? Because I don't know about you, but I mean, I know where I was. I know where I am now. And I look back at that and you know what? It's normally, I, 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 it's just there. It's just there. Is your faith contagious like that? So much so that the news of it or, or what's going on with you really reaches beyond these walls. Over into work, over into your friends, over into your family, over into your neighbors. God, I pray that it would be. See, first, Paul gives thanks to God for their faith and their contagious, love, or their contagious faith and contagious love for one another. But secondly, under a main heading, 
want to ask the question, what does St. Paul intercede on behalf of the Ephesians for? What does Paul pray for? So on one hand, he's thanking the Lord. On the next hand, he begins to intercede for them. Well, in verses 17 to 23, Paul prays that God will give these Ephesians, these saints in Ephesus, five gifts. What are those gifts? Well, number one, Paul asked God, Paul asked God to give them wisdom and revelation. Read with me verse 17. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Okay, so what's that mean? Well, there's two Greek words in there, Sophia and Apocalypsis. Okay, Sophia translates into wisdom. And it really means this. It means having true insight of known facts or insight into the absolute true nature of things. Okay, so that's Sophia. What about Apocalypsis? Well, that's translated Revelation. And it means this. It means to, our Revelation um, means to unveil or to, to disclose something that has previously been hidden. As one scholar I read put it, he said that Revelation that Paul speaks of here is some hidden thing or mystery of God that is unveiled by God and cannot, get this, cannot be discovered through human investigation. And then Paul says at the end of verse 17 that both wisdom and revelation are to be in the knowledge of him, that meaning Jesus Christ. So you put that phrase together, what does that mean? Put it all together, and essentially what Paul is praying is that God would give the Holy Spirit's insight and disclosure of himself, the God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to the saints that are in Ephesus. So what's the big deal? This is a lot bigger, or this is a lot deeper than just knowing about God's Wikipedia page, okay? This is a lot bigger than looking up God on LinkedIn or trying to find his profile somewhere, his resume, or trying to speed date God. See, through reasoning alone, we can learn a lot about a person. We can gather a lot of facts about them. It's kind of somewhat like when you go to the doctor's office. You know, they kind of got the interview they go through. You know, <laughs> what's your name? <laughs> what's your date of birth? Where do you live? Where do you work? What's your weight? <laughs> What's your age, your height? You know, got any diseases? <laughs> but friend, if you're really going to get to intimately know a person, if you're going to really know that person, that person is going to have to reveal themselves to you. If you're going to get to intimately know them, you're, they're going to have to reveal themselves to you and show you what they really are like through how they act, through the words they say. They're going to have to express thoughts, express feelings, express hopes, dreams, ambitions, their likes and dislikes, their fears in life, their wants and wishes. That's how you really get to know someone. And that's kind of, and that's really the kind of knowing that Paul is praying for them to have. For them to have wisdom, knowledge about God. For them to enter into the deep, intimate salvation, or the deep, intimate salvation mysteries of God and his word. So Paul prays for God to give them a spirit of wisdom and a spirit of revelation. Well, number two, Paul also prays that God will enlighten their hearts. Verse 18. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. 
The word here for enlighten is, is fotizo, and of course it's where we, our word like photo comes from. And it means to enlighten spiritually. And then if you look in this passage, there also you have the word heart. And in this verse, it refers to the seed of our will, the seed of our volition, our thought, our understanding, our moral, our intellectual life, even down to the seat of feelings and emotions. And so when heart is used in this biblical context, it really means our, like our total being of who we are. It's not just a head thing. And Paul is praying that the Holy Spirit will enlighten or illuminate their total being spiritually to God. In other words, really what Paul's talking about here is like a Holy Spirit wrought kind of aha moment. Something that takes place in their life that's so extraordinary, they can never forget it. And because basically when this thing begins to take place in the totality of their lives, it begins to kind of unwrap or they begin to, to know God. They begin to, to see God in the totality of his personality as the Holy Spirit reveals God to them through his word. And as God begins to reveal himself, he begins to tell them what he is like in the gospels in the person of Jesus Christ. In short, it kind of looks like this. Listen, we get to know God, okay, as we pray to him over his word, as we listen to his word. Even as we imagine ourselves walking with him when we read the Gospels, much as you would a conversation with your best friend or spouse. See, being in close dialogue and in an intimate relationship with God is required to be enlightened to his word. Really, I don't know else how to say it. It's just when God turns the light on for some of us. Now, I remember back to my pre-seminary days. Early in my Christian walk was much kind of like this. I, I kind of understood the Bible, but it's like all of a sudden God just really turned the lights on for me. And for a long time, I, it just the, the words off the gospel pages literally jumped off the pages. It was almost as if I was having a dialogue with God. It was almost as if I could almost feel the things that I was reading. I could hear the things that I was seeing. And then I went to seminary. They're like... That's too subjective. <laughs> you can't live like that. They kind of killed it for me. Well, thank you, God. About five years ago, I found some people in Durham Chapel Hill that said, you know, it's kind of okay to read the Bible that way. It's called Lectio Divina. Miss Pat here can lead you in the experience of that, if any of you are wondering what that is. To know what it is to be in dialogue, to be in relationship with God through his word, through his prayer, to hear the Lord speaking to you through his word and through his family. So Paul prays for them to have wisdom and knowledge as well as an enlightened heart. Paul also prays for them to have hope. Verse 18, he says that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Paul prays that they may receive the gift of hope. Now friends, conscious of it or not, how each of us lives out our lives really is determined by what you think about the future. Or where you put your hope. If you think the world is going to be all burned up in some cataclysmic end. That heaven and earth will pass away. Which is actually horrible eschatology. Or end times. Then you won't care how you live. Why does it make a difference? If you're just passing through this land as a sojourner, believing that your real home is somewhere else, that this world is not my home, it's somewhere else in a disembodied heavenly realm of sorts, 
you'll tend to not care about the legacy you live behind or you leave behind. You won't really care about the wake you leave behind or the mess, perhaps, you leave behind. Friend, if there is no purpose, if there is no meaning, if there is no goal, if there is no hope, you'll live out the, that narrative. And really, it kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. God has so much more in store for us than that. That is why Paul prays for the Ephesians and to us to know the hope he has, been call, he has called us to. What is that hope? Friends, the Bible teaches that whenever God decides to do it, Christ will come back one day to literally reign on earth. And when he does that, there's going to be a fresh act of God's power and love and grace that will flood the world with his redemptive power and presence, resulting in a totally renewed heaven and earth. In other words, the kingdom of God will arrive. The city of God will happen. As Revelation tells us, the Lord says, Behold, I am making all things new. See, friends, all that God has created in this world is not going to pass away. He's not going to create something different. But instead, in the end times, all the world will be recreated. Just as each of us who know Christ today here are a new creation. See, friends, you are recreated. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus, as Paul tells us. We right now, you who are here this morning, listen, you are on the beginning of the new heaven, the new earth, of what God is going to do one day in the world when he brings all things into culmination under his rule and reign and sets up his kingdom on earth. Listen, that's the narrative that God desires for us to live out. That's a narrative of hope of which he has called us to, a new creation, and friend, that should give us hope. So Paul prays for them to have wisdom and knowledge. He prays for them to have an enlightened heart. He prays for them to have hope. Number four, Paul prays that we may know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Verse 18 simply says, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What in the world is he talking about? Well, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament speaks of God's people or God's people's inheritance being the promised land. Most of you, if you know the Exodus story, you know that they leave Egypt and they're headed for the promised land. Took them a while to get there, but that was their destination. And then in the Old Testament and other places, it talks about the inheritance of God's people being the Lord himself. So they get the promised land as well as they have the Lord himself. But then you also have this idea in the Old Testament of God's people being his treasured possession, a possession of which he will inherit one day. And so I don't really know else how to say this other than, beloved, we inherit the Lord, and the Lord inherits us. We inherit the Lord, the Lord inherits us, not because of anything so great in and of ourselves, but because of the saving work he has done in Jesus and beloved, that ought to give us security and dignity because I've mentioned this before. Have you ever known someone, I've known in two cases where this, hap where this has happened, somebody who is scheduled to inherit a large, uh, or someone who is scheduled to inherit a large sum of money. Have any of you ever known anybody like that? Yes, you can look at me and say, yes, yes, yes. I mean, it's okay to talk back if you want to. Yeah, I've known two people who were like that. And you know what? They're not really worried about life <laughs> so much here. 
They know everything's going to be okay. They have this security that eventually, you know, unless the stock market crashes or the property, you know, gets something happens, they're going to probably inherit this fairly decent sized sum of money. And so they're really not anxious and worried about that sort of thing. How much more, friend, if we inherit Jesus, is our future secure? I mean, think about it. Anybody can ask you, what are you going to inherit life? You may not be scheduled to inherit anything, okay? What are you going to inherit life or inherit in this life? God. God. Let us not receive that gift like a box of unwanted socks on Christmas morning. We inherit Jesus. Jesus inherits us. I don't quite understand all that. I'm just telling you what the scriptures say this morning. So Paul asked for for them to have wisdom and knowledge. He asked for them to have enlightened hearts, for them to have hope, for them to have rich or to discover and know about the riches of their inheritance. But lastly, Paul prays that we, as well as the Ephesians, might know of God's immeasurable power. Look with me in verse 19 and following. He says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet And gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Now, friends, I think today, and even in Paul's day, most Christians are quite unaware of the power that really is available to us in Jesus Christ. And verses 19 to 24 tell us four things about the working of God's immeasurable power. And it's this. That one, God's power raised Jesus from the dead. God's power raised Jesus from the dead. Number two, God's power seated Jesus at the right hand of God, giving him supreme authority. Number three, God put all this, these verses tell us that God put all things under Jesus' feet, giving Jesus absolute supreme power in the world. And fourthly, God made Jesus head over all things for the church making that power available to us. Now, beloved, when it comes to talking about the power of God and what it took to resurrect Jesus Christ from the dead, I agree with Andy Stanley on this. He said this. He said, if a man can predict his own death and resurrection and pull it off, I just pretty much go with whatever that man says. I think that's Paul's point in verses 19 to 20. See, he wants us to know that this, listen to this, this is mind-boggling. He wants us to know in those verses that the same immeasurable power that resurrected Jesus from the dead is the same power at work within you and me as believers. It's available to us. It is in us. Then when Paul moves on to verse 20, talks about Jesus being seated at the right hand of the Father. That's not a mere word picture. That's not merely flowery flowery speech. 
See, Paul wants us to know that Jesus is literally at a place of absolute power, absolute rule, absolute honor, and absolute glory. And then in verse 21, when Paul says, Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Paul is telling us that Christ is the power standard by which all other powers in this world are to be measured. Listen, Jesus Christ's power gives people victory over sin, death, and Satan. Christ rules over every bit of that stuff. There is no greater rule than Christ. There is no kingship. There is no political power. There is no document. There is no court. Not even the Constitution and the Bill of Rights of the USA outweighs or outranks Jesus, if this passage is right, okay? There is no authority greater than Christ who can thwart his word or his rule or power. And all this socio-political mess that we're in right now, it can't stop what Jesus really wants to do. There's no dominion, there's no otherworldly force, including Satan and his whole band of demons and evil influence that can prevent the advancement of the kingdom of God. Listen, Jesus told us himself that the gates of hell cannot prevail against his church. But listen, friend, his rule has been inaugurated right now in his people. That means you, that means me. And when Paul says that he, that, God, that he put God, or God, excuse me, when Paul says that God put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What Paul is saying, and I don't know why this is so hard for some of us to get it through our heads, but that we, that you, that me, the church, we are his body. We are his body. He is our head. That means we are his agents. We are his hands on this earth. We are his feet. We are to be carrying out what Jesus started. And beloved, it goes even further. If Christ is all these things and has all that power and we are his body, guess what? The church, beloved, has a lot more prominent place in the cosmos and grand scheme of things than many of us have been taught or believe or realize. Take everything I've said in this sermon and last week's sermon and put it all together. Let me ask you a couple questions by way of application. What would happen? What could take place? What would be possible in this world, in Winston-Salem, if a group of people, say like the people of Christ Church, Winston-Salem, embraced their God-given Identities that we talked about last week of being blessed, being chosen, being destined, bestowed, lavished upon, to know that we know the will of God and to be gathered up in Christ. What if we embrace that in identity? And then what would happen if then in full faith and full love of one another, we decided to embrace the five gifts that Paul prays for those Ephesians to have here in this passage? The gift of wisdom and revelation from God. A gift of having hearts enlightened to understand the scriptures. The gift of hope, knowing that the whole world one day will be recreated and new. The gift of knowing that our inheritance is secure in Jesus. The gift of knowing that the same Holy Spirit power that resurrected Christ Jesus from the dead is fully operating and in full power in and through them. What would happen? What could happen? Church, my main question of application is this today. 
Why are we selling ourselves so short? Friend, why are you selling yourself so short this morning? Chapter one of Ephesians are your privileges into which you enter by God's grace. Beloved, embrace your identity in Christ. Embrace God's gift. Friends, we need our eyes open to see how rich we are in Jesus. And may God open our eyes to see. Would you pray with me, please? Glorious Father of our God and Father in our Lord Jesus Christ, we do ask, Lord, that you would give us here today a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know you better, Lord. God, may the eyes of our hearts be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which you have called us the riches of your glorious inheritance and your people and your incomparably great power for us who here today believe. The same power as the mighty strength you exerted when you raised Christ from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that can be invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please stand with me.